This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, a cryptocurrency paradise takes shape in the Pacific, but so too are concerns over it. A lot of the reason that they want to do this in some remote island versus in London or New York City is that they want to create basically a micronation where they can create their own rules. As Vanuatu heads into a snap election, there's hopes we can see more women into office for the first time in a decade. And sharks can be deadly, but they're also an important part of Pacific culture. The dances that they perform today of the Beisamle are telling about their, their power, their authority, their stamp of rule. Pacific leaders have wrapped up an historic meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House. Security in the Pacific and for the Pacific Islanders remains as critical as ever to us, and I hope to you as well, to secure the security of America, quite frankly, and the world depends on your security and the security of the Pacific Islands, and I really mean that. U.S. President Joe Biden speaking there at a summit which ended with leaders endorsing a joint 11-point declaration outlining their vision for partnership between Washington and Pacific nations. But earlier in the week, it was a different story, with Solomon Islands indicating it would not sign the declaration. So what's changed? We're joined by Marion Farr, who has been covering the summit. So first, Marion, what exactly is this declaration between the United States and Pacific leaders? We know that um, the United States is really keen to solidify its relationship and presence in the Pacific, largely to counter China's influence in the region. Now, this declaration was endorsed by 14 Pacific leaders and U.S. President Joe Biden at a White House dinner um, earlier this week. It um, contains a resolve to strengthening the partnership between the two regions with a a view to preserving peace and harmony in the region. Uh, There are points about recognising Pacific regionalism, which has um, which became a bit contentious earlier in the piece when some Pacific islands were not invited to the summit and that was sort of later resolved with some heavy lobbying from Pacific leaders. Um, the document also contains a very prominent uh, reference to climate change, saying tackling the climate crisis is a priority for the region. Uh, there's also mention of advancing economic growth, development, uh, disaster preparation, security, and addressing health issues like COVID-19. So, yeah, there's, there's a long list of things there, and the document is quite general. What is really interesting, though, is what's been left out. So the ABC has seen earlier drafts of this declaration that contained references to uh, preserving peace in the Taiwan Strait. Now, that's been removed, which is really interesting because that particular line is one that would deeply upset China. Um, There was also a line that seemed to reference Solomon Islands, a security pact with China that was signed earlier this year, and uh, the need to consult the region over such agreements in the future. That line has also been removed from this final uh, declaration. Earlier in the week, Solomon Islands had come out and indicated that it wouldn't sign the declaration because it wanted more time to consider it. But now it's part of that declaration. So what's changed? Well, Evan, that's 
the million dollar question. Um, what we should know is that this document hasn't exactly been signed per se, but um, leaders have listed their names at the bottom. And you might think that that's splitting hairs and perhaps it is, but it also might go some way to um, allowing Solomon Islands to save face after it sent out a diplomatic note to other leaders earlier this week um, saying that it wouldn't sign the, uh, the declaration just yet. Solomon Islands' reasoning, as you mentioned, was that it wanted more time to consider the declaration and uh, also to take, take the document to the country's national parliament for debate. There was some, some concern that Solomon Islands was potentially being a bit deliberately obstructive in doing that, and it would have really frustrated Washington, especially given concerns about Solomon Islands' uh, relationship with China, um, with the signing of that security agreement earlier this year and other um, yeah, developments uh, in the region. So to, to, to actually secure uh, endorsement for this declaration, including from Solomon Islands, will be seen as a diplomatic victory for the US, um, given all the contention in the lead-up. What did win Solomon Islands over, though? Well, we yeah, we just don't know and we may, may never know, but I think it's safe to say that there's been a lot of uh, heavy negotiation behind closed doors. Now, Marion, in the official photo of the event, we see Joe Biden, in the, the US president, Joe Biden in the middle. On one side is Fiji Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, and on the other side is uh, Manasseh Sagovari, Solomon Islands Prime Minister. Uh, should we read anything into this uh, positioning? Optics are always important, and um, you know there are a lot of uh, photos um, going around on social media at the moment. I also saw um, a couple of a photo of um, I think it was Henry Puna and Frank Barney Marama um, with big smiles in aviator sunglasses, which I think will be very appealing to the US. Um, so. Yeah, look, these optics are important, but um, and and I think that uh, People's Republic of China will also be looking at looking at this quite sternly. But um, yeah, I think that I think the US will be pretty happy with that outcome of of this meeting of this summit. ABC reporter Marion Farr speaking to me there. Owners of an island in Vanuatu have started selling plots of land on the blockchain as land NFTs in an ambitious project to create a cryptocurrency paradise in the Pacific. The experimental project aims to sell access and development rights to parts of the island for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. As Priyanka Srinivasan reports, aspects of the project remain uncertain and experts are urging investors to be cautious. When Indigenous landowner Philip Warrele first found out that foreign developers were coming to his island, he was happy. We were glad with the way they spoke about the project because we knew it would improve the economy of Vanuatu and bring money into the country. They'll also employ lots of labourers to work on the island. The developers of Satoshi Island have already employed around 10 members of his family and Philip says another 10 will join the team on his island to Vanuatu's north. They are clearing forest to make way for more than a thousand planned modular homes to be owned and occupied by cryptocurrency enthusiasts from around the world. But Mr. Warale says that's not possible. My understanding is that they're not selling the plots, but they're just renting out the plots, so they buy a license just to use the land. 
On their website, though, it says those people who buy a license, they own the property, they own the land on Satoshi. According to you, is that right or not right? According to me, that's not right. Like, there's one man who has paid for a lease, so we have an agreement with him. But for him, on top of that, to sell the land inside the island, that's not possible. If he rents out the land to others, well, that's okay. But we need to get more information on the project to have a better understanding of it. Many of the details around Satoshi Island are unclear. Press and information on the company's website say people can buy so-called land deed NFTs using digital cryptocurrency, granting them access to develop and live on blocks of land. Eventually, they want to create a crypto capital where groceries, food and transport are paid entirely with digital tokens. Satoshi Island is truly a real-world use case for blockchain technology, as 100% of commerce on the island will be cryptocurrency-based. But such a large-scale cryptocurrency project has never been attempted in Vanuatu before, and the company admits its digital land deeds do not fall under the country's jurisdiction. And despite company claims that people can own homes on the island, anyone can own a piece of the island through the availability of an NFT collection made up of 2,100 uniquely identified blocks of land. Its fine print states that ultimately, it's the Satoshi Island Company, registered as a non-profit in the Marshall Islands, that has the right to own and develop the land, whose behind the project is also unclear. According to the Vanuatu government's land documents, Satoshi, traditionally known as Lutaro Island, is under the direction of Teresa Jane Allen and her company, Satoshi Island Holdings. But her name is not listed on Satoshi Island's website, promotional material, or any of the company's land agreements. Meanwhile, the company's operating officer, Dennis Troyak, who was a cafe owner in Sydney before moving to Vanuatu to oversee the Satoshi Island project, previously told Pacific Beat that Miss Allen has no relationship to Satoshi Island, even though she is listed on its official documents. Despite these discrepancies, hype around the project is growing. It is called Satoshi Island. It is being designed as a crypto-centric, smart, sustainable city. It will have its own currency, citizen, zero tax, run 100% on renewable energy, and be a home for crypto professionals and enthusiasts worldwide. So is the ambitious project to create a crypto city in Vanuatu possible? There's enough flexibility in the legal system and in, in the rules for such project to, to go ahead and to exist. Vanuatu lawyer Didier Hamel-Landry says though the project is unusual, it doesn't seem to contradict any specific laws. There used to be a perception that cryptocurrency was a complete ban in Vanuatu. I think the situation has changed. There's a certain openness to the use of, of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology and so on. Mr. Hamel-Landry says what is being proposed by Satoshi Island does follow the books, but still has a warning for potential investors. So I think it's possible with keeping in mind that someone buying those fractions or those blocks of land uh, rights doesn't directly own the land, but has a more conditional uh, sort of right to that land. It doesn't guarantee that it's a good idea and a, and a sound investment. A 2017 press release on cryptocurrency from Vanuatu's Reserve Bank strongly advised all businesses and individuals not to be involved in any form of cryptocurrency because it lacks sufficient regulation. This lack of oversight is why you U.S. software engineer Molly White is skeptical of the Satoshi Island project. It's 
actually just another in sort of a long line of these ideas of creating these separate communities for people to engage in. You know, a lot of these projects take place in the South Pacific or other tropical areas. One thing that seems to be very common among them is that they don't like laws very much. You know, a lot of the reason that they want to do this in some remote island versus in London or New York City is that they want to create basically a micronation where they can create their own rules. She also says the company may not have considered the logistical realities of creating a city on a remote island like Satoshi. Uh, All of the sort of less glamorous things, which are always not mentioned very prominently in the plans for a lot of these things. And in some cases, it turns out they haven't really thought about them at all. But its supporters remain undeterred. Monty Metzger is the founder and CEO of a blockchain platform called LCX in Liechtenstein and has been an early fan of Satoshi Island. For me, participating in Satoshi Island is a fun thing. I want to learn how they are doing it and I want to see how much interest it it will gain. It is an experiment and kind of a pilot project. I'm always skeptical, but I'm also enthusiastic. So it's a balance between both sides of a project. And for Satoshi Island, we don't know all these aspects, but I also would not put in my life savings into that, but rather participate as being part of a club. Dozens of plots of land on Satoshi Island have already been traded online as land NFTs. The company hopes to welcome visitors to the island in the coming months. Priyanka Srinivasan with that report. And Pacific Beat has invited Satoshi Island's Dennis Troyak on our show, but we've yet to receive a response. Now staying in Vanuatu, where a snap election will take place in two weeks' time, and human rights groups are working overtime to get women into parliament for the first time since 2012. They're hoping the elections, which take place two years ahead of schedule, will level the playing field for female politicians. Mackenzie Smith with more. In Vanuatu, only five women have been members of parliament since independence in 1980. But since 2012, there's been no women in parliament. That's something that Leas Manu Kalwik, executive director of the Vanuatu National Council of Women, wants to see change. There's no women in parliament and uh, there's no effective uh, participation women in decision making. So... uh, We've lost out on a lot of things and then with the pandemic rise and the climate changes and all these things, it's seriously affecting the women and we need to be in the decision making. Candidates have yet to be announced in Vanuatu for the October 13 election, but Leas Manukowik says she's ready to support any woman who wants to stand. Anne Parkour, chief executive of the Vanuatu Human Rights Coalition, says there's a lot riding on this election. As you know, everyone's looking forward to some women candidates successfully uh, winning, you know, these elections and securing seats in parliament. It's everybody's dream. I mean, mostly women. So we have some very good candidates. So we're just hoping that um, some of them will get in. The snap election was announced in August after Parliament was dissolved in a move widely viewed as designed to avoid a motion of no confidence against Prime Minister Bob Lohman. Dissatisfaction with that decision prompted Vanuatu's Malvatu Māori, or Council of Chiefs, to stand for election for the first time. And Pākua says given the recent turmoil, women candidates may have a better chance. If you follow social media, a lot of... Um People are saying they're really sick. 
they were really sick of the last parliament because uh, it didn't really show the spirit of democracy and especially traditional respect for the elders of the land. I mean, you know, a lot of people were quite upset. Jenny Legor is chair of the Vanuatu Coalition for Gender Equality. She says women candidates in Vanuatu have previously struggled to prepare for elections, but she says the snap election may level the playing field this time around. At the moment, it will be a tough election for everyone, whether it's women or men. And I think uh, many voters now have realized that uh, they have done their duty in uh, electing uh, MPs to parliament. Legot says political reforms are needed and women can play a key role in maintaining unity in Vanuatu. Mackenzie Smith with that report. Now to a new exhibit in Sydney showcasing the evolution and history of sharks and First Nation people's knowledge of them, including those from the Pacific. The Sharks exhibit at the Australian Museum features an 8-metre-long whale shark, interactive displays and cultural objects. Dubravka Volodir was there for its opening. Ovid Sambo is a clansman of the Meuram clan of Murray Island in the Torres Strait. This hammerhead shark dance was performed at the opening of the sharks exhibit in Sydney. The dances that we perform today of the Baysamle are telling about their, their power, their authority, their stamp of rule amongst the Meriam society. The significance of this exhibition about sharks is really about me, about my identity. My totem is a shark, a tiger shark, and the tiger shark is, is the head of all sharks in and around Murray Island. Around me here at the museum are at least 100 specimens, artifacts and huge projections. There are 11 life-sized models, including an 8-metre-long whale shark, a now-extinct 270-million-year-old buzzsaw shark with large teeth, and a deep-sea goblin shark dating back 125 million years. There are also cultural objects here. Hi, I'm Kim McKay. I'm the director and CEO of the Australian Museum. We're just standing in front of the Tonga collection. Can you tell me a bit about the um, objects we can see here? Certainly. Well, these are new objects in our collection. They were just presented to us by the Tongan community here in Sydney. We're very touched by this. These are instruments that summon up the sharks. So, of course, sharks are very important in Tongan culture, like most Pacific cultures. And here we have some wonderful coconut rattles that if you move them and shake them, the sharks would be summoned. In addition to that, this beautiful carved drum, which when it's beaten, and it could be on a little boat as well, the sharks would come around. And this really beautiful shell, which of course traditionally the conch shell is blown to signify important events. In this particular case... This conch shell has some holes in it, and that's because they were used to create a noose to capture a shark. So, of course, the great thing about this exhibition is it shows how Pacific cultures and Aboriginal First Nations cultures have interacted with sharks and made it in a sustainable way. Of course, they've been used for food. We see some really interesting examples here of where sharks' teeth have been used historically in weaponry, such as in Kiribati. 
And um, there's quite a lot of knowledge in the Pacific about sharks and how to live with them sustainably. Sharks are endangered. What can we learn from Pacific cultures and Pacific people? Well, I think the first thing is about walking lightly on the earth and living sustainably. Sharks are an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. And this was understood for generations by Pacific and First Nations cultures. So we need to learn that. They're not something to be afraid of. They need to thrive in our oceans for the sustainability of our oceans as a whole. So they're very important apex predators, of course, in some cases, although some sharks aren't predators. But it's amazing the diversity of sharks. So in Australian waters alone, we have over half the world's shark species, some 182 sharks. So to do this exhibition, we went out to Pacific communities, not just Tongan, but in Hawaii as well, and Fiji and many other areas, and we consulted with local communities. Australian Museum CEO Kim McKay ending that report from Dubravka Volodaire. For the last two years, the Pacific has been starved of live international sport because of the pandemic, and plans for a Women's Pacific Cricket Cup have been put on hold. But now at last, the inaugural tournament is going ahead, with Vanuatu playing host to Samoa, Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Jordan Fennell with more. As captain of the Lewas, Kaya Arua has some work to do on lifting her team's spirit for the Pacific Cup after they missed out on winning a T20 World Cup spot. Victory over Scotland in their final match meant PNG finished fifth overall, but the skipper says her players were still rather despondent. The team's a bit down, but I know this is not the end of the world. We can still come back, train hard, work on what we didn't do well. I think it's something that we need to learn and work on. But I know at the moment some are not feeling okay. Cricket PNG's chief executive Greg Campbell says the Lewas were faced with a quick turnaround to make it to Vanuatu, but they can take a lot out of their Dubai experience. And they're preparing for the Pacific Cup campaign at the Centre of Excellence in Brisbane, courtesy of the Pacific Oz Sports Program. It's a big turnaround from Dubai, but look, it was disappointing, but I think Dubai was a great turning curve for the girls under the new coach Kath Hempenstall. I think they played some really good cricket, you know, chased down 168 against Scotland in the last game and then, you know, chased down some other totals and put some totals on the scoreboard and, you know, the probably disappointing game for them was the Thailand game where we probably should have won that and been in the semi-final but it's all learning curve. It's uh, under a new coach. I think they played very well in learning different parts of the game and strategy and look at overall, I think it was a good result for them and, you know, we can only build from here. The home side Vanuatu will be captained by Selena Solman. It's going to be intense, but we are looking forward for the tournament. I think they started with the men's tournament after winning. It gave us, the girls, a lot of motivation to, you know, work hard and trying to do well in the home soil. Going against PNG and Samoa, they're a pretty good side. And Fiji's been training a lot, but we always said we're going to go there and give it our all. If we win or we lose, we know we've tried our hardest and we played our best and we enjoyed the game. Solman expects the new tournament to grow in stature and give her players what they need to keep them interested, more cricket. And Greg Campbell says the backing is there to ensure the Pacific Cup becomes a permanent fixture. This Pacific Cup's a bigger picture in two or three years to come, you know, with New Zealand government and Australian government getting behind this. So we felt obligated to play in it and as the leading uh, 
EAP country, we wanted to play in it too, so to, you know, to perform and show others and give the EAP region some cricket because there's been no cricket in the EAP region for two years. We have work and, you know, some of them are travelling and, you know, we have to wait for two years. Not really easy, but I think if we have this every year or every in, in between will be a good uh, push and motivation for the girls to look forward every year for something. And motivation is important because managing family life with a semi-professional sporting career can be hard, as PNG captain Kaya Arua can testify. Some of us, we didn't make it to higher education and uh, we were fortunate enough that we were blessed with this talent. And when we got the opportunity, we tried to make use of it. I was lucky enough that I had a good support from my parents, my partner and my in-laws. They really support me taking care of the kids. Selena Solman says she can't wait to get out there and play cricket in front of the team's home fans after such a long COVID-enforced break. It's an honour always to represent my country and to captain the country, uh, especially on the home soil. We're going to play the best that we can for our families and our friends because we know that we're going to have a lot of families and friends to come out and support and cheer us. We're looking forward to play together as a team again, so we're not going to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We're just going to go have fun and play. Selena Solomon, captain of Vanuatu's women's cricket team, ending that report from Jordan Fennell. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.